Well, today is the final sermon of this series uh, on the parables, the stories that Jesus has told. Uh, This is actually the twelfth of these sermons. Uh, And uh, it just seems like not that long ago we were starting and when I realized this is number twelve already. Next Sunday we are starting Zechariah. And we will continue that right up until Easter Sunday. No book for its size is quoted more, especially in the accounts of the Passion, than Zechariah. And uh, so we're going to go back and see exactly what it was that Zechariah was saying that was so important to uh, the story uh, of Jesus himself. Uh, I have those little blue books. it turned out to be under $50, right at $50, so five bucks a piece if you want one of them. If you can't afford the five dollars, that's fine, it'll be covered. Uh, but if you want one, see me after service and, and I'll get you one of them. I forgot to bring them out, they're sitting on my desk. Uh, so uh, we will have those, the ones that have the text on the left side and places to write on the right side. We'll have those available. Well, our final message in the stories that Jesus told. And I think probably appropriate for the final message. You know, life is made up of an infinite amount of choices. And many decisions that you and I make, for instance, what we're going to eat for lunch, are really only slightly impactful. Now, it could affect me tomorrow morning or tonight later if I choose to eat too many desserts and too much of the bread because it would affect my sugar levels. But in the long run, most of those kind of choices really don't affect us that much. And yet, we know that the eating habits that are developed by children can plague them and can plague us even in our adult years. And there are many decisions that we make even as youth that change our lives forever and are often tough to reverse let me give you an example a friend of mine back when we were in college he decided that he wanted to go to medical school and become a medical missionary and he made it But it was only after really working hard the last three years of college and getting straight A's, going on and doing a master's degree and getting straight A's, before he ever got accepted into medical school. Because in high school, he didn't think grades were that important, and so he had a hurdle to overcome to get accepted into medical school. Some of those choices we make expand our futures. Others continue to be of a limiting nature. And if you choose to confront the options that are before you with courage and with confidence, a lot of times you can open yourself up to a a fulfilling path of your design filled with all kinds of possibilities. I want to tell you a story about a man. A man that I learned about here not too long ago. 
And it's just a, a real inspiration to me. Because you know what? I have to admit to you, I have a real hard time being sympathetic to people who want to blame things for their situations. I really do. Have you ever read the story about a, a boy named It? Have you ever read that one? It's a story about a man who's very successful today who was one of the worst cases of child abuse that I have ever heard about in my life. His parents, his mother I should say, only referred to him as It. That's why the book is titled what it is. It's not the one I want to tell you today though. I want to tell you a little bit about a man named Roger Crawford. He was born with ectrodactylism. Ectrodactylism is a rare disease that only affects one out of 90,000 children born in the United States. The disease left him with a thumb-like projection directly out of his right forearm and a thumb along with a finger sticking out of his left forearm. He had no palms and his arms were and legs were both shortened. He had only three toes on his shrunken left foot and a withered right leg. I got that backwards. Three toes on his shrunken right foot and a left leg that was withered and had to later be amputated. And yet, Sports Illustrated called Roger Crawford one of the most accomplished, physically challenged athletes in the world. He became the first and the only athlete with four impaired limbs to compete in an NCAA Division I college sport. And to later be certified by the United States Professional Tennis Association. And as a result of all that, he was inducted into Loyola Marymount University's Athletic Hall of Fame. So you know the context. Now let me share with you what Roger Crawford has written. We are a product of the choices we make, not the circumstances that we face. Now, Speaking about how we are a product of our choices, Sean Covey, a well-known New York Times best-selling author, in fact, he wrote a book titled The Six Most Important Decisions You'll Ever Make. He said, ultimately, you choose to be happy or miserable. The reality is that although you're free to choose, you can't cho choose the consequences of your choices. They're preloaded. It's a package deal. Interestingly, that's not what the deceiver wants you to believe, is it? Nor many in our society. I like what Charles Stanley, uh, elderly minister, very old now, uh, I like what he wrote, though, about the biggest lie. He says one of Satan's most deceptive and powerful ways of defeating us is to get us to believe a lie. 
And the biggest lie is that there are no consequences to our own doing. Satan will give you whatever you ask if it will lead you where he ultimately wants you. And one of those great lies, one of the great deceptions of our age, our society, is that somehow money will bring with it happiness and success. Listen to the warnings of James and John. James writes, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And John in his little letter, he says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John doesn't see how it's possible to love God and not help somebody that's in material need. James questions the authenticity of our faith the faith of somebody who has but does nothing to help the physical needs of others. In effect, both view uncaring, stingy people as lost, despite their affirmations of faith and love in God. And they should. That's what the Lord Himself affirmed in the story that Jesus told that we're going to look at today. And I've chosen to title my message, Choices, the Parable of the Six Brothers. Just as there was reason for me to emphasize and focus on the fact that the parable of the prodigal son began with the phrase, there was a man who had two sons, pointing out that the story Jesus told was stressing the broken relationships of both brothers, not just the one that went off, but the one who was lost even though he was right at home. In our parable today, Jesus' focus is on the attitudes of the rich man and his five brothers. Now the immediate setting is that Jesus is teaching his disciples, but he's doing so in the hearing of the Pharisees. Chapter 16 begins with a story about a dishonest manager in which Jesus is addressing the whole proper use of money. And in verse 14, he says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. With those same Pharisees listening in, Jesus tells our story. Our parable that confronts the abuse of money, especially by the rich. And it's a, it's a solemn warning. As, as Mary Jane read for us in the call to worship, Jesus reminded us that temptations to sin are sure to come. But we need to make sure that we're not the ones that brings temptations to others. So let's see what the story is that Jesus has to tell. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen 
and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. And none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that, they, that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. May God add his blessing to our reading of his word today. First of all, I want to point out how Jesus begins with a gripping description of contrasting lifestyles. First, there was a rich man dressed in purple, lived like a king. Purple was the color of royalty. In fact, he wore outer garments of probably imported Phoenician wool dyed with the purple of murex, a rare and expensive sea mussel. And next to his skin, he wore an unusually fine linen. The word used probably refers to that that was imported from Egypt. And at the center of his daily existence was a brilliant table. Cuisine every day. See, Jesus was describing Roman chick to the nth degree. I mean, this guy, even though he was a Jew, was living at the top. Then in stark contrast, (coughs) the beggar. The beggar was who was so ill that it says he had to be laid, literally cast, at the rich man's gate. His illness and his malnutrition left him covered with weeping ulcers or sores and assaulted with constant hunger. It says he would have gladly accepted even the leftovers from the rich man's table. Luke and scholar John Nolan says that though the common view is that the dogs were probably wild dogs, (coughs) 
He sees the word that's used as indicating they were probably dogs from the rich man's estate. And, and I quote here, instead of a servant coming with the fallen scraps, the dogs come from having consumed the scraps. And they come to lick the afflicted man's sores. Be that as it may, the picture is of a man that was utterly neglected, helpless, and receiving more compassion from unclean dogs than from the rich man's house. The, the wealthy man knew who the beggar was. In Jesus' story, he later recognizes him after they both have died. Meanwhile, though, day by day, as the man passed through his own gate, wearing his fine purple robes, his own perfumed aroma collided with the beggar's stench. The way Jesus tells the story, I have no doubt under such circumstances that their eyes would have occasionally met. And yet, with no recognition or no feelings of warmth. The beggar was simply part of the landscape. An unpleasant sight that one had to endure. Several years ago, we went to Chicago as a family. And as we were walking from where our car was to another area, we walked under one of those extended bridges. And I've got to tell you, I had tears come to my eyes as I saw couples living in cardboard tents there underneath those bridges. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but if you go back and check, you're going to find out that I'm right. Lazarus is the only, the only person named by name in any of Jesus' parables. And you simply can't identify this beggar with Lazarus of Bethany. Lazarus of Bethany was well-to-do, had a home, was able to provide a feast. So why does Jesus name this man this time in this story? I think it's possibly because of what the name meant. God has helped. God has helped. I think that's appropriate in view of, of the divinely arranged outcome of, of his life. But while sitting at the rich man's gate, his name seems to be a mockery. We can't help but question, can we? Those times when troubles come, pain comes. I, I haven't figured out yet what to do. But we have somebody connected with our congregation who at times would come in and I would talk. Who just recently experienced the third death in just a matter of a couple of years. 
of significant people. And sometimes when those things happen, we sit back and we say, why? Why? I mean, how could this rich man, considering himself to be a son of Abraham, and somebody who was a blessed member because he was rich, that's what they believed, how could he have been so heartless? I mean, he certainly wasn't an atheist. He believed in God and the way Jesus told the story, he wouldn't have been a Sadducee. They denied the resurrection. And because of what I quoted earlier from verse 14, the way Jesus told the story, it was to help the Pharisees see themselves more clearly. This rich man's beliefs, his theology was probably right on line. Orthodox. He would have affirmed the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He would have understood that after death comes judgment. So why his lack of compassion? Obviously, I think he didn't take Scripture seriously. I mean, that's something he and the rest of his culture professed to believe. That God's Word through the prophets was uniformly consistent about the necessity of mercy and compassion. Hosea 6.6 For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. I mean, that's a text that was a pillar in Jesus' teaching. He quoted it twice. First time he says, go and do your homework. And he quotes this verse. The second time he says, quoting the verse again, if you would have done your homework, you wouldn't have been coming back to me with this situation. We cannot please God without having a merciful spirit. Not a critical, judgmental spirit, but a merciful spirit. And a surface reading of this parable might indicate that the rich man missed salvation because he wasn't generous enough with his money. But I want to tell you that's not the case. The true reason for his damnation and his, was his disregard for God's Word and his rejection of the Lord. He didn't believe the Scriptures. And he certainly didn't think his disregard would land him in hell. To think that someone like him, living in such abundance, could miss heaven? That'd be unthinkable to the Pharisees. And yet, without Christ, such is the case. And that brings us to Jesus' description, the dramatic reversal and the circumstances of the two places. Death sometimes brings a dramatic reversal in lifestyle. I'm sure that someone here knows someone who, upon the death of their spouse, was unable to continue living the lifestyle that he or she had lived while they were married. That's not uncommon at all. But this story is about the dramatic reversal that took place when each of the two men died. First, for Lazarus. We're told the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Nothing is mentioned as to whether or not anyone 
bothered to bury him. And probably not. Beggars in that time would have been cast over into the fires in the Valley of Hinnon to burn with the rest of the garbage. But the angels made sure he was given a place of honor at a heavenly feast. We're told that Abraham, that Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom. Not because he was poor, but I think through his name, God has helped. He had believed God's word and trusted in him. He was at rest, serene. Then came the exodus of the man who loved purple. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. I would imagine he had a pretty impressive funeral. Everyone was probably there, properly mourning. He must have looked really marvelous in his fine purple attire. Probably laid in a beautiful above-the-ground tomb. But that wasn't the end of the story. Please listen to me. Jesus is not using this parable to indicate geography, the juxtaposition of heaven and hell, that they exist within view of each other, and so on. It's a parable, not a historical account. And as a parable, it's intended to teach principles, not to give an exhaustive picture of the life hereafter. The rich man was in eternal torment. It wasn't God or Jesus. It was Abraham that he sees. And it's at this point in the story that we begin to hear the pathetic pleas. The rich man pathetically cries out across the distance, pleading, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony and agony in this fire. <coughs> Did you hear how his plea asserted his kinship? Father Abraham? In fact, he calls him father three times in all. The rich man, so insensitive during his earthly life, may have even thought he was in good standing with Father Abraham, and so he assumed he had a right to say what should happen next. Send Lazarus, the, the beggar that he let die, and cool my tongue. The part of him that feasted during his lifetime while Lazarus went hungry. This is where the end of his presumption is and the beginning of his recompense. Did you notice that Lazarus doesn't even say a word in the entire parable? On earth, we aren't told anything about him complaining or blaming God. And Abraham reminds the rich man how during his lifetime he had received good things. But Lazarus had received bad things. And so now Lazarus is comforted while he is in agony. In fact, 
Abraham, I think, was actually quite tender in his response. I mean, he does call him son, which is literally my child. He acknowledged their hereditary kinship, but he he rejected the man's spiritual right to share in the blessings. And then the tough words. Abraham goes on to tell him that there's a great chasm that's been fixed and that's, that's separating them. So that even if someone wanted to go from one side to the other to help, they can't. And this great chasm is unbridgeable. I think if there's anything about this story, this parable, that is a a part of reality, is that once we die, there is a gulf between paradise and Hades, between heaven and hell, that can't be overcome. There is no such thing as purgatory in the Bible where we can pray somebody out of the decisions that they have made in their lifetime and save them from hell. It's not there. And nor does it seem like there's any indication, and I certainly hope not. I'm serious. I hope there is no way that people in heaven can see what's going on on earth. Or it wouldn't be heaven for them. I certainly hope that my dad is not looking down on me with all of the mistakes that I make on a day-to-day basis. It would be disappointing to him. He wouldn't be in heaven if he could see my sometimes very hellish choices. For the first time in the story, the rich man shows some interest in others. But who? His five brothers. Joachim Jeremias, in his book, The Parables of Jesus, he points out that this is a story that is here to help us understand First of all, we need to understand the parable as a whole. We have to recognize that this is one of Jesus' double-edged parables. And the emphasis is not really on the reversal of fortune that we see in the first half. The emphasis, the focus, is on these pleas on behalf of the five brothers. In fact, he states that the parable could be titled, as I have chosen to do from his lead, the parable of the six brothers. The focus is not so much on the deplorable social conditions of the rich and the poor, nor is this to be taken as teaching regarding life after death. The emphasis is on the devastating spiritual condition that we all too often find where people are demanding signs. Where people are not satisfied with the evidence of Scripture, both Old and New Testaments. Where people are not satisfied with the changes that they have had to see in the changed lives of so many. 
where people are not satisfied with what the church has done in terms of schools and hospitals, care for the orphans, responding to natural disasters. Years ago, when we went down to Joplin, Missouri, we took our youth group and we went down for a week and we just said, where can we work? How can we help? And I stopped in one day to get gas. And the van that we were using was a plain white van. No marking on it. And the guy who was getting the gas for us said, let me ask you a question. Are you a church group? And I said, yes, we are. He said, do you know that the majority of the recovery work that has taken place in Joplin, Missouri has not come from the government, but it's come from church groups just like yours that have come down with loads of food and clothing and have come to work without asking for anything in return? And I said, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. But somehow that's not enough to help people understand. And so they fail to give their lives in humble obedience and service. Remember what Abraham said? If somebody comes back from the dead, they're not going to believe. Didn't they not believe? Didn't somebody come back from the dead? Even in Jesus' day, after Lazarus had come back from the dead, did that change the people who knew about it? No. No. And it hasn't really affected that many people that Jesus came back from the dead. They, they question it. They doubt it. Jesus said if they don't understand Moses and the prophets. Remember the story of the road to Emmaus? Two disciples walking along. They had witnessed the crucifixion. They had even known about how the ladies found the tomb empty. And yet they still were saddened by the death of Jesus. They didn't believe. Didn't believe. And I really wonder how much different we are. I sometimes wonder how much we really believe that if we were to die right now, it could happen. We have a boiler that's basically right below me somewhere here. And that boiler, for some reason, could go out. The gas could continue to fill the room beneath me. And the pilot might try to come back on or the hot water heater might come on and spark and cause a massive explosion. Are any of you, I know some of you are old enough, but do you remember when the big structure, I don't know what they called it, at the state fairgrounds in Indianapolis had a massive explosion during one of the ice capades? And many people were killed. That could blow up right now and we'd be gone. Are you ready?
challenge to conclude comes from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy. Chapter 30. Verse 11 begins, For this commandment that I command you today is not hard for you, neither is it far off. And then jumping down to verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Moses is talking. He's talking to the people because he's about to die. He knows he's about to die. He's talking to Joshua who's going to take over the lead. I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord that your God that I give you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rule, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of. Verse 17. But if your heart turns away and you don't hear, but you're drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over to the Jordan to possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, Choose life that you and your offspring may live. Let's pray. Father God, help us. Help us to not be like the rich man. Help us to not disregard your word. Help us to live in obedience. To be seen as people of compassion and mercy. Help us to obey your word in all that we say and do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.